The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box, and these are your headlines. The Chinese economy loses further momentum as data misses targets. COVID curbs and a property slump weighing on the world's second largest economy. Uh, U.S. markets fall for the first time in three days as Fed Vice Chair Lael Brainard backs slower rate rises, but says the central bank's work is far from over. We've done a lot. But we have additional work to do both on raising rates and sustaining restraint to bring inflation down to 2% uh, over time. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway makes a $4 billion bet on Taiwanese chip giant TSMC, vaulting a third tech company into the investment firm's top holdings. German semiconductor firm Infineon upgrades its long-term financial targets as it clocks a near 30% rise in four-year revenue and seals a new $5 billion chip project. We will speak exclusively to Infineon CFO Sven Schneider at 8.30 CET. And Presidents Biden and Xi striking a, well, warmish tone despite frosty relations as the two leaders meet at the G20 in Bali. The US, though, objecting to Chinese rhetoric on Taiwan, but Biden downplaying the risks of rising tensions. I absolutely believe there need not be a new Cold War. We, uh, I've met, met many times with Xi Jinping, and we were candid and clear with one another across the board. So let's kick off with the uh, Chinese data. Chinese retail sales fell and factory output growth declined in the month of October, pointing to a further slowdown in the world's second largest economy. Industrial production rising 5% year on year, missing expectations, while retail sales fell 0.5%, marking the first decline since May. As far as the uh, performance uh, in the Asian markets is concerned, actually there was quite a lot of green. We are higher across the board on the Chinese indices, perhaps more of a a reaction to how the market feels the authorities are going to respond to this data rather than the data per se. But let's get out to Sam, who's got more on the story for us, Sam. So more evidence of uh, declining activity in China, Sam. Good morning to you, Jeff. Absolutely. Further confirmation of the broad-based slowdown we're seeing in China is, of course, we've seen the lockdown-heavy zero-COVID strategy. We've also seen this sluggishness in the property sector and also, of course, that slowing export growth. And as Goldman Sachs put it, really just more than offsetting, of course, the policy measures that we've seen continuing to be pumped out by the authorities. It was interesting what you say about the markets actually holding up pretty well, looking pretty resilient despite this data. Perhaps a few things going on there. Maybe investors sort of pricing in this data, given that it hasn't looked good throughout the whole of October. So it didn't look like it was going to bode well or paint a very rosy picture of the figures that we were going to get today. Uh, Perhaps a bit of bad news for the economy, good news for the markets, uh, given that this perhaps might build the case maybe for more stimulus, certainly moving forward. Although we got no change to the medium term lending facility rate, that key lending rate today, uh, which certainly highlights perhaps there are some constraints around monetary 
easing over in China, some concerns and a bit wary perhaps of a further depreciation pressure, certainly on the Chinese currency, because uh, we actually have seen that firming up today. It's now sitting at 7.04 against the dollar. There is a lot of investor, certainly positivity, you could say, off the back of that meeting between Biden and Xi, perhaps uh, that is uh, suggesting uh, to the markets that we may see some improvements when it comes to that relationship, uh, certainly moving forward. But, uh, you know, in terms of that data, consumption was really the concerning trend uh, coming in uh, down, actually falling the first time that we've seen since May, when, of course, we saw the height of that Shanghai lockdown. And we've got to remember, of course, this data is capturing Golden Week, which is the big- biggest and busiest or one of them in uh, holidays over in China. But, uh, of course, we saw a lot of lockdowns ahead of that highly scripted 20th Party Congress, and that wasn't good for things like catering. We know anecdotally people are also holding back on their spending given the fear factor around the virus at the moment. They're also concerned about jobs and salary. We saw, of course, the employment rate sticking at the same rate as we saw in September. We've still got youth unemployment hovering around a record high, still in high double digits. Now, industrial output, that slowed down from the month of September as we did, of course, see that export growth surprisingly contracting, and that was fairly consistent with the factory output, which has taken a hit from certainly a lot of these COVID restrictions that we've seen. Of course, I think what investors are watching out for now uh, is what China is going to do next in terms of these uh, spike in cases that we've seen, given that they have said that they would be relaxing uh, these restrictions. But we have seen uh, certainly around 18,000 new cases reported this morning. Two areas of big concern, Guangzhou and Chongqing, both making up for around two and a half percent of GDP. So that's the one to watch, guys. Back to you. Terrific. Sam, thank you very much indeed for the coverage. And for more on the broader slowdown in the Chinese economy, check out cnbc.com. Now, a number of flashes just hitting the wires uh, related to Credit Suisse this morning. Um, A lot of it to do with the program that Credit Suisse already outlined at its uh, third quarter earnings uh, meeting. Uh, But we are awaiting on an EGM that will take place next week, middle of the week, to get sign-off on some of the initiatives that would put fresh capital into Credit Suisse. So let me just walk you through the statement and then if we have a moment we can maybe talk about it. Credit Suisse accelerating the radical restructuring of the investment bank as outlined effectively at the third quarter. Uh, It's entered into a definitive transaction agreement to sell a significant part of its securitized products group and other related financing businesses to Apollo Global Management, already largely speculated on around the third quarter announcement, of course, but this illustrates that some progress is being made on that transaction. Execution of these agreements represents an important step towards a managed exit from the securitized products business. The group expects uh, to significantly de-risk the investment bank and release capital to invest in Credit Suisse's core businesses. Uh, As part of the transaction, Apollo has agreed to acquire a significant part of Credit Suisse's uh, portfolio assets. Uh, From that securitized products group, the transaction together with the contemplated sale of other portfolio assets to third-party investors is expected to reduce SPG assets from $75 billion to approximately $20 billion through a series of transactions expected to be completed by mid-2023. So uh, they're talking about a release of um, risk-weighted assets of up to $10 billion, depending on the scope of what is ultimately transferred here. Uh, Approximately $20 billion of remaining assets 
will generate income to support the exit from the SPG business uh, that will be managed by Apollo under an investment management relationship with an expected term of five years to be entered into at first closing. So we've got a bit of detail here as to exactly what will happen with this uh, Apollo transaction. But as I say, I mean, this is parts of the jigsaw piece falling into place. We already know what the jigsaw puzzle looks like from the box that was given to us uh, for the third quarter. And ultimately, the success or failure of the program that was outlined by the new management team relies a lot on the way the EGM vote takes place uh, next week and whether ultimately the Saudi investor is green-lighted to inject their two and a half billion. Let's just talk about the label first on the jigsaw box. I mean, Credit Suisse describes this business as the jewel in the crown. Others describe it as a bad bank. So which one is it? It's quite uh, different descriptions, isn't it, on the label as to what type of asset uh, SPG is. In terms of its market size, though, this is a fairly dominant uh, player. If you think about what it does, it's capital intensive, has a a large amount of risk-weighted assets, and that's a problem if you try to deleverage a bank. So again, back to the motivation today for Apollo to step in for Credit Suisse to be handing over a pass of the business here. So there are clearly issues as we talk about deleveraging. But in terms of just how sizable it is, SPG responsible for around $153 billion of issuance across the public US securitization market in 2021. So that is a fairly hefty player, 14% of the total volume. In the States, uh, the uh, residential mortgage-backed security market, for example, uh, apparently dominant player in that market. So again, this is why if you think about Apollo and a lot of its private equity uh, exposures, that's why it is relevant here as we take a look at that particular market. But uh, worth noting, of course, residential mortgage-backed securities are we going into more difficult times when we're talking about uh, higher interest rates and uh, mortgage rates that are spiked? Which it means that the private equity companies would have potentially bought this at a significant discount exactly. to where it would have been uh, during less risky times as well. Uh, someone once wisely said to me, actually it was you, uh, you can't. Sh- you Not can't. That wise, then. That wise. You can't shrink your way to growth, and this is a very profitable area of lending, but it is also a riskier area of lending as well. And there's part of a trend. And I'm, by the way, I, I'm taking off a brilliant article by James Fontanella Khan and Brooke Masters and Antoine Gara of the Financial Times. This is their copy. I'm following here that they wrote an article on this deal potentially on the 27th of October. So uh, a great team at the FT commenting on this one as well. The New York-based securitized products business, uh, which packages debts for mortgages and loans for yachts before selling them on securities, would reduce the capital uh, burden on the banks as well, but also sever, and this is the key line, but also sever one of the bank's most profitable business lines as well. And I think it's very interesting that so far we've heard about Apollo, we haven't heard about PIMCO, who is also an original player potentially looking at these assets as well. So very interesting, the retreat of banks, of investment banks, and especially European banks in this area, and as you quite rightly say, private equity filling in that gap as well. According to the article, just let me finish a second, Apollo, for instance, has originated more than $100 billion of loans directly over the past 12 months, much of them through its own lending operations, uh, spanning equipment, finance, mortgages, and mezzanine real estate loans. And as I say, that's FT copy, not mine, and a, a great article from the 27th of October, talking about the rationale. Yeah, just a little bit more on the income and the value here for Credit Suisse from this business. A fixed income division revenues predominantly make up 
the SPG. They had uh, a decrease last year, but still they accounted for about half of the investment banking um, uh, revenue, 1.12 billion. So as we talk about taking a, a cut to some of the risk-weighted assets, you also take a hit to the revenue side. Yeah, So uh, it's absolutely. dual in terms so, of the impact. So what does this mean about, dare I say it, financial security of the system as well, as we see a migration from banks to private equity as well. I wonder if some of the regulators are beginning to think about what that means in terms of ramifications for visibility of where there are stresses uh, in the broader uh, securitized loan market. Yeah, no, I, I would imagine that, um, well, hopefully, you would hope. They were all over it, hopefully. You would hope that they are looking quite closely because uh, it, it's, it's like looking at a picture and um, the picture is split down the middle because the sun is coming into the room, but half of the, the light that falls on the picture is blocked by a curtain. And it's a bit like that when you think about public and private markets, or that's how, how I like to think about it, because the minute you move into the darkness, you lose the detail on the picture and you, you lose really clarity about what the connection between that side of the picture is with that side of the picture. And that is the problem that we're, we're now witnessing with the FTX story and everything that's going on with digital. But it also is part of the story when it comes to private equity and VC funding, because we really don't know a lot about what's going on in a lot of those private businesses and to what extent there are threads that tie them to listed businesses here. And I think, you know, the interesting part about Credit Suisse is it's, it's part of that story. Here, here's a bank that I think is worried about its ability to be liquid enough to continue to service clients in these more risky businesses. So what do you do? You sell it and walk away from it and you in inverted commas, de-risk. But I think you both made terrific points about what that ultimately then means for profitability going forward, because you cannot derive the same kind of profit from your average vanilla, plain vanilla millionaire who's just got a bit of money in his account and you're managing it for him. Yeah, great point. Uh, let's park the conversation there and take a look at some of the uh, macroeconomic uh, news stories as Americans grew more worried about inflation last month, according to the New York Fed's monthly survey of consumer expectations, with fears centered around an expected surge in prices at the pump. Inflation expectations for the year ahead rose to 5.9%, up half a percentage point from September to the highest level since July. Three-year expectations accelerated to 3.1%, while the five-year outlook also rose. Meanwhile, the Fed's vice chair, Lal Brainard, has said that the central bank would soon end its series of bumper rate hikes. It has lifted rates by 75 basis points at each of its past four meetings. Brainard said the Fed would not ease its fight against inflation, but argued that moving at a more deliberate pace would give the Fed more flexibility to assess data and adjust rates as required. Brainard reiterated that there's still plenty to be done. It will probably um, be appropriate um uh, soon um, to move to a slower pace of increases. But I think what's really important to emphasize, we've done a lot, but we have additional work to do both on raising rates and sustaining restraint to bring inflation down to 2% uh, over time. Uh, Leo Brainard there. Interesting, the markets got a little bit more excited about what she had to say and came off the lows as well uh, about uh, the concerns previously, of course, that uh, the Fed's going to stay too high for too long as well. Slowing the pace of rate hikes, that's what comforted the market somewhat as well. But there was another Fed speaker out there yesterday as well, and I thought it was very interesting. So I'll just go over that very quickly. 
Uh, and this was Governor Waller, Christopher Waller, uh, of the, on the Board of Governors of the Fed as well, saying, and I'm not sure if many of you saw this bit, but if you didn't, here is what he said. The market seems to have gotten way out in front of this, talking about CPI. Everybody should just take a deep breath. Let's do it together. Come on, everyone. And calm down. Yeah, he's saying we have a way to go yet. He said the current 7.7% year-on-year change in CPI is enormous. Should we do that again? Let's have a bit of therapy, everyone, together. Jeff, Karen, you ready? <sighs> bit of box breathing for everyone. There you go. So market getting a little bit carried away, but not so much yesterday. More of an, an abating of the, uh, the euphoria yesterday. The Dow was down 211 points as well. We saw a percent coming off the Nasdaq as well. What about the Treasuries? What did the Treasuries do? Let's have a look. Uh, Ten-year paper uh, trading at 386 um, and at the short end, the two-year, which had that violent rally in the pay underlying and the decline in the yield uh, last week, 439. Let's have a look at dollar crosses as well. Pound still at parity, Jeff. Oh, no, sorry, 117.75. I keep getting that wrong, sorry. So many people, so many people told me parity was a, a shoo-in. Um, had a rally on the euro, but nothing anywhere near as spectacular as the rally we've seen on the pound. But my goodness me, what a big fiscal event we have later on. If only you had one of our key anchors on a trading floor later in the week. I'm hoping for that, hoping for that. 117.75 sterling trading on cable, euro dollar 103.31, dolly yen 140. Uh, and Jeff was particularly interested in the dolly one yesterday, 7.0 five is where it is as well let's have a look at the oil complex as well really doesn't know where to go at the moment had a strong rally off its lows last week to the high 90s for brent now back down to 92.72 uh, wti 85.25 and gold pretty stately really doesn't seem to be as volatile as in days of your 17.69 is where it is currently trading uh down 0.1 of a percent. Now, Jeff Curry, he said a few, a few things about the oil price over the years, isn't he? Sometimes he's right as well. Jeff Curry is the global head of commodities research at Goldman Sachs, told our US colleagues that China's move to open up the country and help with the property slump are having a positive impact on markets. The world's second largest economy, the largest commodity consumer in the world, was basically hibernating over the last 12 months and has made it clear to the world it's coming out of the hibernation. So, um, through addressing the zero COVID policy, but also through um, dealing with the property market. So these are very large developments and you're seeing it starting to be priced into the dollar. Jeff Curry there from Goldman Sachs. Well, coming up on the program, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway reveals a $4 billion stake in TSMC. That's the Taiwanese semiconductor company shares their hire. We'll talk about that and we'll talk about the other highlights from this quarter's 13F filings. That's where the big investors have bought stakes. And for more on the disappointing Chinese data, as well as the latest market action, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
Shares in Infineon closing almost 8% higher after the uh, segment profit for that business jumped more than 60% for the fiscal year, coming in at 3.3 billion euros. The German chipmaker raising its growth target, saying it expects its average annual rate of revenue growth to top 10%. Infineon also unveiling plans for a new 5 billion euro facility in Dresden, which it says will come into operation by 2026 and create around a thousand new jobs and we will hear exclusively from Infineon's CFO Sven Schneider. That's a conversation coming up at 8.30 Central European time. Meanwhile, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has disclosed a $4.1 billion stake in Taiwan Semiconductor, sending shares in the chipmaker sharply higher, 7.9% higher in session. Berkshire's purchase of over 60 million shares revealed in the latest 13F regulatory filings makes TSMC its largest investment last quarter and its 10th largest holding overall. Berkshire Hathaway also revealed new positions in lumber maker Louisiana Pacific and investment bank Jeffries, sending shares in both higher after hours. And you can see there Louisiana Pacific up 10.3%, Jeffries up 4.4%. Apple remains Berkshire Hathaway's biggest holding by far, with a stake of almost $124 billion, followed by Bank of America and Chevron. Meanwhile, Chase Coleman's Tiger Global Fund doubled down on big tech according to its latest regulatory filing, despite the industry suffering another difficult quarter. Coleman's technology-focused fund maintained a stake of around $1.5 billion in JD.com and Microsoft. It also doubled its stake in enterprise software company ServiceNow, making it its third largest holding. Dan Loeb's third point revealed it has built stakes in retailers Bath and Body Works and TJX companies, whilst also upping its position in Colgate Palmolive to over $800 million. This after CNBC revealed Loeb is eyeing value in a potential spin-off of Colgate's pet food business. Loeb also raised his activist holdings in Disney, where he's been pushing for a spin-off of ESPN. Well, let's get to John Blank, the chief equity strategist at Zach's Investment Research. John, very good day to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. What can we learn? What can we garner from the activities uh, of the whales and watching them? It seems to me, actually, very interesting that it's a lot of old economy value companies that are being snapped up. Yeah, Buffett, you know, I, I've been talking up the semis myself here for the last you know, three months. I got to actually talk tomorrow on the semiconductor, you know, opportunities. So the interesting thing about Buffett is he picked up Taiwan 70 around $70 a share. The highs on Taiwan 70 around 140 back, you know, a year ago. But what's interesting about it is he, he kind of got in early on this trade. I, I would have probably waited for, you know, the 50s or 60s on the shares like this because you've got enough worry and enough downside pressure on that stock. I don't think it's been done selling, but what Buffett likes to do is he just decides, hey, you know what? I got a price earnings growth, a peg, a peg ratio of 0.5. I've got a price earnings ratio of 12. I've got the foundation stock of the chip business globally on sale, and I simply don't care to buy the bottom or even care what it is. This is a good value. He bought it. So what that tells you is Buffett is uh, finally getting some confidence in thinking 
he can understand at least the foundations of the chip tech business. And I agree with him on, on staying with the chips and staying away from the big mega cap style that, that drove the COVID rally. I think he's smart about that. So all in all, I think Buffett made a great call. Um, you know, JD.com, you threw that one out there. I think that's another stock that sold off big. It's, it's in the space of China where I think so much bad news is priced in. So I tend to agree with that holding and keeping on with JD. I think you know now is not the time to get rid of JD because there's nothing but pessimism for 12 months, as, as a lot of your news stories pointed out. That that means all you have here is is positive catalyst for any good news. John, very interesting. You started off by talking about the value of some of these assets compared to their value of 12 months ago as well. And that's something that a lot of our viewers are pondering, looking at backward valuations and old PEs and saying, well, look where they're trading now. But is that relevant in an era of 7.7% inflation, uh, an era of repriced money? It's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I think the last two years are totally irrelevant. So I think the bubble price of 140, for example, is totally irrelevant. But what I think is relevant is is the pre-COVID prices of, you know, $50, $60 a share on, on Taiwan Semi. So, because why do I think that? Well, you, you look at the 7.7% inflation rate, that's a COVID rate too. So you can't say to yourself, I'm going to, you know, pay attention to the inflation rate is 7.7%, but I'm not going to pay attention to money printing. They're, they're basically the same COVID effect, you know, in different dimensions. So, I do think, you know, if you just think of it from a year-on-year trailing context, the, the CPI is going to roll over sometime in May or April anyways, and that's what the market figures out. So I think you can price, you know, a Taiwan Semi or a JD on you know, a standard equity premium. And, you know, typically the equity market premium right now is about four and a half, and you've got a tenure at a, you know, tracking around four. So you still got enough value in buying these big stocks uh, on a traditional you know, valuation model that I think, you know, you say to yourself, hey, as long as the, this gets back to the 1819 kind of story, and then by the way, we've got four years of growth, some of that growth over those years, and stocks like Taiwan Semi are going to get 10, 12% growth, you might have a 40% bigger company now. So that's that's the upside with these plays is you can get into JD, you can get into TSM, and you can sit there and say, hey, I don't really care where the bottom is. As an investor, I'm getting a great stock in a in a huge space, dominant player, and just ride it out. And I think that's basically what these big funds are doing. Um, John, Steve, Steve talked about some of the interest, uh, I think, in in the retailers. I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that. You know, as as half of the investment community thinks that we're we're going into a, a recession, the like of which we haven't seen since the 30s. You've got people like Dan Loeb loading up and Bath and Body Works and um, uh, TJX. What, what is he seeing in that trade that others are not? Those are really, you know, I don't like those trades. I, I don't understand. First of all, Bed Bath & Beyond has, you know, really gotten hammered and passed a very game stock. I mean, all he's doing if he's buying it is he's, he's going to try to be an activist investor and go in and fix the business. Um so, you know, good luck with that. I don't think anybody can do it. It's just not it's just not been a performing uh, area for retail for some time anyways. So, but to the point of, you know, is the consumer in trouble right now? I don't think so. I think broadly speaking, the retailers, we're going to find out later this week, we're going to get a nice new October number out of retail for the United States. But I generally think it's going to be fine. And, and the thing is, people forget, you know, all the Fed has 
at their disposal is the interest rate. And frankly, that's not going to move anything other than basically automotive and some housing. But for most consumers, it's it's the price level and their and their incomes. And on the price level, obviously terrible stories there for them. But on incomes, jobs are plentiful. You know, their 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 job is at least there, and most of the staple spending, you know, a fair amount of discretionary spending is holding up because people are just simply tired of COVID. I mean, every time I talk to somebody, you know, they say, "Hey, COVID's over," but in general, the whole effects that we're looking at on any stock market or any stock or any area is still related to the outgoing play of this COVID story. And so, I just think, you know, you got to remember. COVID as an infection when we have vaccinations is gone, but the effects of it, there are just so many dimensions to it. And I think we get at least another 18 months before it plays out. John, can I ask you about Tesla before we let you go? The stock down more than 50% so far this year. We know Elon Musk is busy with his Twitter investment. In fact, uh, some shareholders are worried that he's stretched too thin and doesn't justify the 50 up to $56 billion in share options that the board awarded him. Just give us a sense as to how you're thinking about Tesla at this point. Yeah, you know, Karen, what I think is if you go online to Hyundai and look at the Optic 5, it's, it's the Motor Trend SUV of the year for 2023. It is a brilliant, brilliant all-electric SUV. It was just out of all the different car makers I looked into for, for a battery project and an ETF autonomous vehicle product, this one stood out to me. So what it tells me is that there are so many major automakers, that's just the one I, that was most notable that's worth looking into, that are going to take Tesla on and take share away. So... In the midst of his Twitter debacle, where he's completely focusing on a new business at a time when his core holding very overvalued stock, unless it does 50% growth a year, and he's not paying attention to it. It's kind of crazy. So I think the market is just saying, hey, we have an you know, absentee landlord in a, in a stock that has to deliver 50% growth rates. And competition is really striking. It's ready to go. So, you know, the story of Musk has been he got a good head start. He has a great product, but all of that's going to end. And while he's sitting here in Twitter, it's crazy. So, you know, a lot of the analysts are taking, you know, it down for these reasons that it's just the, the lack of focus. And then if he has to get out of Twitter and somehow sell more shares, or somehow these these the twelve billion dollars that he owes to these banks, they call it in on his shares, then that's another selling pressure. So very difficult to like Tesla right now as a stock because you gotta have Musk focusing on the business, and that's the dead last thing that guy seems to want to do. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Show, weekdays on CNBC.